All right, James chapter 1. The lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. That's what the book of James is about. This is how a Christian thinks. This is how a Christian lives. This is how genuine faith proves itself, validates itself, and perfects itself. This is genuine faith. Real Christians have a faith that's validated by what they do and don't do. Today, we're going to focus on something Christians don't do or shouldn't do. This is James chapter 1. This is the first section, real Christianity. Real Christians deal with difficulty differently. That's our big idea, and they deal with it successfully. As it relates to troubles external, they embrace those troubles. They accept those troubles. They celebrate those troubles. They engage the benefit of those troubles. They trust God in prayer by faith to allow those troubles as they cooperate with him and his sovereign intention in difficulty to make them what otherwise they wouldn't be. They don't run from trouble. They don't just try to survive it or numb themselves to it. They actually seek to capitalize on it. Because what Christians know, because God's word tells us, is a good God is doing good things through difficult places. So if you're in trouble today, you have an opportunity. If you're in trouble today, the divine master trainer is engaging your heart in a way that is designed to advance you, not to harm you, but to help you, to become what you were created to be, what you were redeemed to be, and that is to walk and live like Jesus Christ, whole, complete, lacking in nothing. Real Christians deal with difficulty differently. One of the preeminent places of difficulty is materially, financially. So James gives us in a few verses how real Christians deal with financial trials and tests, difficulty. If you're poor, he says you're to glory in your high station. So if you're a person of low status financially, economically, socially, you need to remember who you are if you're a Christian and rejoice in that. That is, you're a child of God, you're exalted by birth, you're exalted by society, you're a part of a kingdom and beneficiary of the world's largest estate dispensed by the Father who loves you and is using this season of difficulty to make you what otherwise you wouldn't be, but he identifies you as who you are because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're poor, I mean, like really poor, you need to identify and think and rejoice out of who he says you are and live like that. If you're rich, if you have material possessions, James would say you're to glory in something else, not your high position financially, but your low position naturally. You're temporal. You're vulnerable. You're like the flower of the grass, here today and gone tomorrow. Let that shape your perspective. It'll protect you from the deceptions that wealth can bring. So, That's how you deal with the challenges that go with material, whether you have it, material goods, whether you don't have them or you do. Now he's going to shift gears, still dealing with difficulty, moving from external difficulty, material difficulty, now internal difficulty. The two big issues Christians will face in their humanity is trouble and temptation, trials 
and temptations. Sometimes trials, and this is thought, sometimes your trials, your troubles can become temptations or seasons of temptation. You're inclined to do things that otherwise you may not do because of the squeeze of your reality. And there's a temptation that can go with difficult places. And the negative consequences can come because maybe you, you do things or say things or you pursue things that otherwise you wouldn't pursue because of your difficulty. And one of the potential challenges that I think we would all agree is either potential or often prominent when we go through difficult things. We can blame God for the difficult season we're in. We can actually blame Him for our difficulty and the negative outcome that flows from our difficulty. In other words, our bad behavior. I wouldn't act the way I act if this circumstance weren't so difficult. And you know, God, you're responsible for my difficult circumstance. Therefore, you're responsible for my bad behavior. I think that's the linking thought in this section. Real Christians deal with difficulty differently. They rejoice in it. They get wisdom from God in order to cooperate with it. They see themselves for who they are, either their high position or their low position in terms of their natural vulnerability in their humanity, and they deal with their temptation in a way that does not encumber or demean God. And they deal with their temptation because they understand how temptation really works. Its source really and the steps that lead to the difficulty that temptation can bring. So that's a kind of a big running start with context. So let's read together. We're going to read 13 through 18, chapter 1, the book of James. Triumphing in temptation is my big title today. Dealing with temptation in a way that allows you to succeed. Because you know where its source is, and you know the steps that facilitate it that can lead to detrimental and destructive consequences. Listen to the words of James, James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Watch verse 16. Just let it sit on you as we read it. Do not be deceived, my beloved brother. It's possible, maybe even highly probable, that you'll deceive yourself as it relates to the troubles and the temptations that come your way. Verse 17, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Verse 18, the final verse in this section, they all go together, these verses. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits 
among his creatures. Temptation, a real challenge and a real trouble. Temptation, the source of it and the steps of temptation so you can defeat it, so you can understand it. He's going to unpack for us the stepping stones to trouble that results from internal solicitations to do evil. So, verse 13, the source of temptation. Are you going to triumph over temptation? Well, Christian needs to recognize, and actually begins with a negative statement, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Here's a prohibitive. Here's an imperative. Don't ever say. Emphatic word is no one. No one at no time. No person should ever say when they're in the crucible of temptation, God's responsible for this. They should never say at all, not one time, it should never come out of their lips that God is responsible for this. The source of temptation, number one, it's not deity. It's not God. The language is very strong in this verse. The original language makes declarative statements, statements which would say, you don't ever say it because it's not even possible. It is not possible for God to be the source of your temptation. Now, that's interesting, and we need to acknowledge it. The word temptation is the same word for trial, smas. Early in this passage, it's outward trouble. It's a test. God does test, but he doesn't tempt. Listen to what the Bible says relative to God's behavior toward Abraham. And remember what tests are. The reason you count it all joy when you fall into various trials, because of the trying, the testing of your faith produces something. The testing of your faith reveals something. That's a positive potential. And God sometimes tests us. And the scripture is plain about that. But God never tempts us. The word temptation, parasmos, can also be translated solicitation to do evil. Temptation, a, a wooing to do something that is not proper but sinful. God said to Abraham in Genesis 22, 1, It came to pass after these things that God did test Abraham. He tested him when he asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac to him. It wasn't a temptation to make Abraham do evil. A test was designed to reveal to Abraham what was in Abraham's heart, to affirm his status before God. This is what Moses said to God's people in Deuteronomy 13.3, For the Lord your God, to the people of Israel, Moses talking, the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. These circumstances, these difficult places, are not designed to woo you into sin, but reveal the status of your heart before God, the character of your heart. Which is why Psalm 7, verse 9, part B, David writes, The righteous God, for the righteous, rather, for the righteous person, God tries. He tests the heart and the minds of the righteous. 
You see this in Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 31, where it relates to Hezekiah. You remember Hezekiah's story? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. This is rehearsed in Second Kings chapter 20 and Second Chronicles chapter 32, where Hezekiah is flourishing, and then the Assyrians, the enemy, threaten. And they say that we're going to destroy you, and Hezekiah in great panic, if you will, calls the man of God, Isaiah, and says, we're threatened, we're vulnerable, and he solicits the prophet's support in prayer, and he begins to seek the Lord for support. And God does an amazing thing for Hezekiah. He defeats the Assyrians all by himself. 185,000, all of the enemy, dead and distracted, sent home. Big event in the life of Hezekiah. Hezekiah did what many of us would do after a big victory. In the wealth and in the kind of result, the the victorious celebration and the spoils that go with the defeat, because the whole camp, everybody was dead in the camp of the Assyrians. Assets were available to Hezekiah. And with those assets. What happens when you win a great victory and you enjoy great benefit? Well, one of the potential happenings is you don't say, thank you, God. You elevate yourself with, wow, look what I have done, which is what Hezekiah did. And the next thing Hezekiah knows is he's mortally ill. He gets a diagnosis that says, you're going to die. Again, humbled in that reality, he appeals to God in prayer. God responds and says, I'll add 15 years to your life. Do you remember this story? What happens when God answers a prayer like that? Oh, and then he added this. Hezekiah said, I, I, I validate that for me. Give me the comfort and confidence that the promise you just gave me to extend my life is going to be realized, I'm going to be healed, and I'm going to enjoy 15 years. He gave him a sign. The shadow on the steps when the sun was setting, the shadow on the steps all the way to the bottom of the stairs in the house of Ahaz, they're going to go, the sun is going to go backwards, and those steps are going to move from the shadow. It's going to go back up the stairs. Ten steps are going to be illuminated because the sun is going to move. Pretty big sign. What do you do after God not only tells you, I'm going to heal you and extend your life, I'm going to give you a natural sign that validates and guarantees that I will. What are you going to do? Well, not only are you going to celebrate, but you also ought to say thank you. But the Bible says that Hezekiah did not respond to God by doing good toward God as a result of the good God had done to him. And instead of gratitude and humility, he did what we're inclined to do, forget how good God had been. It's hard to imagine, but that's our humanity. He goes into his treasure house, counts his money, and this is a... Harryism, and then envoys from Babylon. Remember, the Babylonians loved to look at the stars. 
They, they, they saw something happen, presumably the sun backing up. So they come out great wealth and status of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, not in humility, but in pride, says, let's take a tour through my treasury. The Bible says in his pride, he showed off his stuff. The Babylonians saw the wealth, and guess what they decided to do? I think we'll go get some. When Hezekiah enjoyed that great experience from God, the Bible says something in Second. I don't know why my mic is my mic in and out. Okay, so I don't. Is it a battery thing or is it a Harry thing? Can't be me. It's got to be the battery. <laughs> listen, listen to what the Bible says about Hezekiah's behavior with these envoys from Babylon. The Lord God, when these Babylonian envoys, ambassadors came to check out the wealth and the reason for the sun backing up. This is what the prophet says. God, or the Bible says about Hezekiah, God left him alone to test him that he might know God and Hezekiah all that was in his heart. I'm going to let you make a life decision independent of me. After I have blessed you, after I have benefited you, after I have supernaturally healed you, after I've done a sign that is validating that work, unrivaled and undeniable, I'm going to leave you alone to make a decision that is ultimately going to cost the nation because I want to test what's in your heart. I'm going to circle back to a big statement. God tests us. Difficult things or blessings can be means of exposing necessary realities about who I am, how I am, how I view him. What's in me? Listen, God tests. But those tests are not designed to harm, but to expose, to help us know where we are. Because we, like Hezekiah, can forget. We can be lifted up in pride. We can forget what God has done. So I just want to stamp the idea that Testing comes from God, but testing is designed to reveal it does not include a temptation to injure. Temptation is designed to injure. Temptation, as we'll see in this text, brings forth death. God is not a destroyer, but a builder. God is not a destroyer, but an edifier. He wants to strengthen. The source of temptation, according to this verse, is not God. 
He tests, but he does not solicit to sin. Just a couple of things in this passage to just kind of help you see. Trials are designed by God to bring blessing. Temptations are, by nature, seeking to bring destruction. Outward trouble is real trouble, but outward trouble is not a solicitation, an inward inducement to do wrong. Trials bring, verse 2 and verse 12, potential joy and blessing. Temptation, verse 15, brings death. Verse 4, trials can bring us closer to God. Temptation, by the nature of temptation and sin, brings forth separation from God. Trials are to be endured. Temptation is to be fled or avoided. Why? Is it true that God is not the tempter because of who God is and how God is and what God is purposed in doing. There's a twofold reason, and the way this verse works is there is a ground or reason, verse 13, I want you to see the word for, for God cannot. It is absolutely impossible. It's called a static present. It's not possible ever for God to be tempted, and it's not possible for God to tempt me. He does not tempt anyone. So here's how the verse sets up. No one can say God's at fault. Because no one, nobody at any time has ever been tempted by God. a conviction. I can't blame for my propensity, even in my difficulty, to live in sin or to choose sin. That enticing is never from God. That's the point. Habakkuk 1.13, here's a fact. Thine eyes are too pure to approve what is evil or to promote what is evil. It's not who you are, by character or by nature. Look over at verse 17. I think this is why this is in this section, because it's possible to deceive yourself, not just about where your temptation comes from, but the way you can deceive yourself into assigning it to God, even though God didn't bring that temptation. Verse 17, every good thing, says James, bestowed or given or gifted, every good thing, There's not a good thing you will ever enjoy as a gift that doesn't come from the Father. Every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God in heaven, the Father over the the planets and the stars. By the way, I was up at Mount Wilson yesterday at the observatory. There's a little museum there. You know what I'd forgotten? How big the universe is and how many stars are in it. 500 billion light years. Do you know how far that is? Far. (laughs) They put little numbers with lots of little zeros, and it doesn't mean anything to me. It's just numbers with more zeros. The speed of light, a year, two years, a billion years, that's how far. Oh, and that galaxy, really wide. The God of the lights, 
the Father who has spoken to a world both in expanse and at a level you couldn't imagine. He is the giver. That's his nature of every good gift. He's a good God. He's never not good. He doesn't bring temptation, which would potentially do destructive things for you. He doesn't bring trials in order to harm you, but rather to help you because he's good. And with him, there is no variation which may, and no shadow of turning, like the heavenly bodies that move and change position. God never changes. The shadows that come and the sun that comes up and goes down, it changes both position and the light it brings. God is always giving good gifts because God is always good. You plant that flag in the ground and say, my trouble It's designed for good by a good God, and my temptation couldn't be from God because he always does good. And it is not possible for the God of heaven who is good, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, solicit, invite me to do evil, because that's not good. And it will not result in my good, but my harm and my destruction. Real Christians think differently. It can't be God. It wouldn't ever be God because the God of the Bible wouldn't be the God of the Bible if that's what he did. Never, not one time. And yet, what do we do in our humanity? Well, Genesis chapter 3, what did Adam do? The girl you gave me is my problem. Therefore, you're responsible. This is Genesis 3.12. And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me. I guess he's reconsidering good and perfect gifts. She's no longer a good and perfect gift because she gave me from the tree and I ate. It's her fault, blame shift number one, and it's really your fault because you gave her to me. This is Isaiah 63. Later on, that's at the beginning. And later on, God's people, Isaiah 63, 17. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our hearts from fearing thee? That's Israel to their God, the good and perfect gift-giving God. Go astray because you make us go astray. Our hearts are hard because you're the reason our hearts are hard. The reason I'm living in sin is you. It is in our humanity, that propensity. I want you also to look at verse 18, because not only is it impossible for God to be the source of temptation because of who he is and how he is, good all the time, but what his purpose is as it relates to you. Verse 18 talks about God's good purpose in saving you. Verse 18, in the exercise of his will. Now notice it doesn't say your will, his will. He brought us forth. Who's the actor? God is. Whose will was exerted? His will. A good God exercised his will to do something for you. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Whose word would that be? His word the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, watch this, the first fruits among his creatures. 
so that we, we would be a kind of first fruit. Ancient law, all first fruits were sacred to God. That is to say, all of them, the first fruits, belong to him as his possession and his property. It makes no logical sense that God would take what is his, his possession, his property, at his expense, based on his purpose, to take it and in any way try to damage or destroy it. It's irrational. First fruits were sacred to God. And the critical core truth and conviction and perspective is God is immeasurably and invariably good. His supreme purpose and objective is to recreate, that is to save and transform life through the truth of the gospel so that the men that he saves, he brings forth by the word of truth, his word, are his, they belong to him, and they're his treasure, his sacred blessed possession. They belong to him. They are his. And it's irrational to say that he who would purchase them would destroy them or risk them or in any way corrupt them. Be like me taking something very valuable to me and intentionally putting it at risk or harming it, playing with it because it's valuable. God would never do it. That's his nature. So here's the first thing I want to say about the source of temptation. It's not deity, cannot be deity, not because of who God is. Secondly, because of how God is good all the time. And thirdly, because of God's purpose. It would contradict what God has done and why he has done it. So where does it come from? comes from us. The first way you would be tempted to say it is, the devil made me do it. Okay, so if you get off of God made me do it, now we're going to deal with the devil made me do it, or she made me do it. All of which would be wrong. Real Christians don't assign responsibility for temptation to God, firstly to the enemy, or to someone else. Real Christians recognize, according to verse 14, that the temptation originates from within them. The source is not deity, but here's the word, their desire. Their desire. The source of temptation is not God. He tests, but he does not solicit to sin. The real source, according to verse 14, is inward desire. Notice what it says, verse 14, which is an adversative conjunction, meaning on the other hand, it's not God. It couldn't be God. He never tempts anybody. Verse 14, but each one, do you see the each one? No exceptions, no exclusions. It's in the emphatic position. So every time somebody endures temptation, this is the fact. This is the fact. This is the reality. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what? By what? His own desire. Lust. Look, lust is a fair translation. It just always implies negativity. I can't tell you I'm lusting after something and some negative connotation not come from it. 
but the word is epithumia. Thumia means desire. Epi is a prefix which makes it an ardent desire, a strong desire. It's a natural appetite. Look, it's not wrong for me to long for Krispy Kreme. It's not long, wrong for you to long for intimacy. It's not wrong to long for comfort or sleep or significance. That's not wrong. That's natural. This is a heightened desire. I have a strong desire. I have a hunger for something. This says... And the way this verse is constructed, the source of every temptation begins with a strong appetite in me. And it doesn't even have to be an evil appetite. This word is used of Paul when he says, I don't, I have a great desire to see your face. Referring to the Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. He says, I have a strong desire to depart and to be with Christ. Epithumia, it's strong. Jesus, when he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, went how long without food? 40 days. Then the Bible says he became hungry. Strong desire to eat. Then the tempter came. If there is a temptation, it's rooted in an appetite and a longing that you have, a strong one. And the strength of that appetite becomes the source, the originating source, because that's what James is describing, our epithumia, our strong desire, a heightened desire, an ardent desire, a strong inclination of the soul to acquire something, to have something. It means to set your heart upon, to long for, and not always negative. I'm just hungry. I haven't eaten. I haven't eaten for a long time. I did breakfast at 4.30 this morning. I'm hungry. That's not evil. When the donuts come out in the morning, and I am thankful for those, but I can't go over there. Because for me... They would be a temptation. The issue is the originating source of temptation is in me. It's my hunger. The problem is not with the desire. Listen to this. It is with the means by which we seek to fulfill it. It is the object we choose. Enter the enemy. Notice what it doesn't say about the tempter, because that's how Satan is defined. Genesis 3, the serpent tempted Eve. Matthew 4, 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit to be tempted of the devil. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, lest by, Paul writes, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Satan is a tempter, but he's not the source of the temptation. The source that he manipulates to an object which violates the will and the way of God. I'm hungry. He comes and says, that fruit. I'm needy. I'm lonely. That's solution. I don't have what I need. Take that. No one will know. The enemy, the devil, 
plays on the hunger in our heart and solicits us in cooperation with our hunger to find solutions and things that God would deny as sinful or disobedient or hurtful. The issue I want you to see is that temptation, according to James, starts with an inner hunger. According to James, the devil does not originate our desire, but rather influences it. The problem begins when we allow this hunger to be fulfilled outside of God's design and will. When we go looking for satisfaction on our own, we go cruising. We're really, really hungry, and we go foraging for a satisfaction and a solution. Notice what verse 14 says. There are two participles which modify carried away, or rather tempted. Each one is tempted. That's the main verb. This is a customary universal fact. This is how it works. Everyone, no exceptions, no exclusions, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what? His own desire. The participles, there are two of them. They're both hunting and fishing terms. One is drawn away, enticed, like with a lure. It is a word which has to do with being enticed as with a lure. The word drawn, the first, the first of the words, means to draw out, to, to entice out of a safe place into a place of vulnerability. It's a hunting and fishing term. It describes someone being drawn out into danger, carried away, to be taken in tow. In today's vernacular, it would be cruising, surfing. Our desire causes us to proactively seek. I'm hungry. I'm sitting comfortably on the couch. My hunger does something to me. It moves me. I am tempted when I am drawn away. I get up out of the couch or off of the couch. And I head where? The cupboard or the refrigerator. Because this hunger, not evil, is looking for a solution. And I'm going to forage. You're tempted... And when you're tempted, it's because you're hungry, and in your hunger, you're drawn out to find a solution to that hunger. Are you in sin? No, you're just hungry. I can choose the high-protein bars, the apples, or something not so healthy. Are you with me? So I'm hungry. I'm lonely. I want a relationship. I'm tired of being by myself. I'm built for intimacy. I'm built for community. I'm lonely. So I go, and in my days in college at the university I attended, guys would go cruising around the campus, Brown University, from fraternity party to fraternity party, looking for a solution to the loneliness situation. I am tempted... Number one, when I have a desire and I'm drawn out. Here's an illustration. Any of you fisher fishermen, you do fishing? 
I know we're in Los Angeles. What, do we have one? Yeah, maybe two. Okay. I'm not a fisherman, but I've been fishing. In the great state of Alabama, there's ocean fishing and there's lake fishing. And one of my buddies, a veterinarian, had a big boat. and We'd go out on Lake Logan Martin by the dam and we'd fish. And he had a depth finder and he had little deals where you could figure out where the fish are. And inevitably, we would get up to somewhere where there were were weeds and, and stuff growing out of the lake and perceived places where the fish would feel safe. And the casting of the lure would be over by those stalks and the weeds and the brush growing out of the lake. I said, Bobby, why are you throwing your lure over there? Because the fish are there. That's where they rest and that's where they relax. That's where they're safe. And I want to throw my lure over there because when they see it, it'll do something for them. If they're hungry, it'll move them. They'll be drawn out by their appetite. And then what happens? They're enticed. The other hunting and fishing term is the lure. They'll be. What is a lure? Real food? No. Real f- lures are fake food with a hook. Here's how temptation works. Here are the steps. Desire. Drawn out. Hungry, cruising, maybe surfing. We use surfing the net. I'm looking for something I don't have. I'm at the refrigerator. I'm out on the street. I'm traveling through the park or across the university campus. I'm looking for a solution. Here's a big statement. Because hungry people eat. The source of temptation begins with an appetite that you will satisfy. Uh, When I share this topic, and I may teach uh, here in the next few weeks, take us through Proverbs 7. I just did it recently at Shepherd's Conference. I'm going to do it Wednesday night for the high school guys. Why good people do bad things, the path to moral compromise. It's Proverbs chapter 7. And Proverbs chapter 7 is a vivid illustration of this truth. And that is this, hungry people eat. Proverbs 27, 7, my favorite, like you wouldn't think this verse applies to temptation, but I think it does. Proverbs 27, 7, the sated man loathes honey. You know what a sated man is? Sated means I'm full to the top. I can't eat another bite. The sated man is I'm just finished eating the Thanksgiving meal man. And on the way out of eating the big meal, somebody offers him his favorite food. What does he do? Well, if he's sated, he says, not interested. To eat another bite will make me sick. I think I've told you this. Krispy Kremes are my favorite food group. (laughs) I mean, if I'm going to drive to Burbank, that's a reason to drive. God forbid they get one in Santa Clarita. That would be a temptation that would harm me. I love Krispy Kremes. Take six to even know you've had one, right? You know, they're just going to go away. The sated man loathes Krispy Kremes. Honey is a euphemism in the Hebrew language for the, the sweetest delicacy the food you like the most. What would cause you to loathe a Krispy Kreme? 
if you were sated, if you were satisfied, if you couldn't eat another bite. But listen to the rest of the proverb. But to a hungry man, any bitter thing is sweet. Even the rice cakes look good. (laughs) You ever go shopping, Whole Foods deal or Trader Joe's when you're hungry? I hope you have a big budget because everything looks good. Appetites produce a pursuit. The desire, the longing drives you. It draws you out because hungry people eat. If you're hungry, you will eat. Temptation plays on natural appetites in our humanity, not necessarily evil, that puts us in a place where we're vulnerable. What do we want in our humanity? Well, we're first of all, we like food. We like some level of prominence, some sense of identity, significance. You pick the word. We want to enjoy relationships intimacy. We want to have community. We're hungry for some things in our humanity, and that humanity, that hunger draws us out. And we go looking for solutions because we're going to find one. That's how temptation works. And then a lure hits the water. Our hunger has drawn us out, and verse 14 says, and we're enticed. The word enticed, this is the lure, this is the worm, this is the bait. It's a passive participle, which means somebody throws it out there. It's not me, I didn't create it. I'm drawn out and enticed by something that offers the promise of fulfillment. Something that says, this will satisfy my hunger, this will meet my need. I'm carried out like a fish, from the safety of the, the reeds. I'm hungry. I'm looking. A lure hits the water. I'm enticed. I'm drawn, and I'm moving toward it. The first step of temptation is desire. The second part is drawn out. The third part is I'm deceived by a lure. I want you to notice This word is enticed, not because it's real food. It's a hunting and fishing term, and it means to be baited as with a lure. So it's not real food. It's not satisfying food. It's fake food. It's an object that can't do the job. It can't fulfill the promise that it implies. It's a temptation, and it's a lure, Designed to misrepresent reality, making a... It is in this area, I think, where the devil comes strongly into play. He manipulates our environment to provide false forms of gratification and attempts to convince us it's okay or that no one will know. And you'll see that in Proverbs 7 if we choose to do that. Here's a universal fact. In a nutshell, this is what James would say. Each man is tempted by his own inner desires, his hunger, being drawn out by them and encountering and allured with some bait, some temptation 
Has he committed sin? Yes or no? No. There is no sin. You're going to see that in verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, when the desire conceives, it gives birth. This is vivid language. Two things come together in a conception. The desire and the opportunity united with a decision of the will. Here's the fourth category or step in temptation. I'm going to use the word decision. You have deception, which is the lure. You have being drawn out, which is driven by the desire. And now you have a decision, the union of the desire with the will. When the opportunity for illicit or inappropriate fulfillment unites with a decision of our will to participate, to indulge, this gives birth to something. This conception of two things, my will united with this opportunity and this lore, this bait coming together results in something. It gives birth to something. What is that something? Sin. Sin happens when I decide. Temptation is sin. Hunger is not sin. Hunger is natural to me. It draws me, makes me vulnerable in my appetite, but I'm not sick. And then an enticement comes, the enemy comes, the culture's at work. The push this button on the computer screen happens. The person says to me, let's do lunch or dinner. Or, hey, if I just move this number little bit on my tax return. It'll really make things better. The temptation involves a solicitation and an enticement, a lure, an opportunity, but no sin exists until I choose. I exercise my will and say, yeah, I want that. I'm going to do that. Yes, I'll go with you. Yes, I'll push that button. Yes, I'll take that path. Sin is the result of a conception of my will and that opportunity. And what does that produce? The fifth D, the steps of temptation. Sin, when it's accomplished, when it finishes itself out, what does it produce? Death. All sin is terminal. It's like cancer. I might have it today, but when it works itself out, Absent some intervention, it's terminal. That's what sin is. When it's accomplished, that word means when it's finished out. Death path, when I make it to sin. Sin is what? Disobedience to God. So that decision results in disobedience. That disobedience results in death. Disconnection from God. Disconnection from relationship disconnection in ways that are destructive to me. Sin brings forth death every time, lest it be interrupted. That's how temptation works. It is a drawing away, an enticing, a deceptive enticing that invites me to find solutions outside of the will and the way of God. And when I make the choice to do that, the inevitable outcome is pain 
loss, and destruction. Every time. No exceptions. That's how temptation works. Those are the steps to it. And the next time I'm up, I want to talk about the strategies to overcome it. I want to close. I want to read to you. Just turn back to Proverbs 7 because you're going to see all of those flavors. I'm not going to teach it. I'm just going to read it. This is a morality play, Proverbs chapter 7, verse 6. This is the wise man talking to his son who he would desire to be wise. And he says in verse 6, the wise man, For at the window of my house, Proverbs 7, I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive, that's a young, morally immature man, I discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. Now watch verse 8. Passing through the street near her corner, he takes the way to her house. This is going to be a reference to an immoral woman. Passing through the street near her corner, he takes the way to her house. Now what this is is cruising. I'm hungry. I'm out in the night, verse 9, in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. So I'm out at a time nobody with good character and virtue would be out in the middle of the night, certainly in this culture. I'm passing near her, the potential solution to my appetite and hunger. I'm doing it. I'm cruising in the middle of the night. I'm drawn out by my desire. I'm now looking, and then a lure hits, verse 10, and behold, a woman comes to meet him. So that's the lure hitting the water. He's drawn out from his home. He's now in the streets. He's now out at night, and the lure hits, dressed as a harlot, cunning of heart, and it describes her. Verse 22, the lure, he responds, verse 22, with a decision, suddenly he follows her. This is the decision point of the conception of the opportunity, the lure with the will, he follows her. What's that result in? As an ox goes to the slaughter or as one to fetters, one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. So he does not know that it will cost him his life because sin suddenly The conception of the will results in sin. He follows her. What's that result in? Death. Sin, when it's accomplished, brings forth death. How many times does that happen? Every time you decide to find a hungry solution, a hunger solution rather, in a in a category that's not consistent with a good God who's created a good world to produce a good outcome, to meet every need, every good and perfect gift come from him. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. God's desire is your good. And he wants to feed you from the fountainhead of the life of God. Don't choose something lesser in your hunger that is a deceptive trap that brings deception, that brings destruction and damage and death to your life and to the relationships in your life. That's how temptation works. And next time we're together, where I'll be teacher. I'm not going to teach next week. We have Han teaching next week. I may be here shaking a little bit. It'll be the first time in 35 years I have not taught on Resurrection Sunday. So if you find me in the corner shaking, it's not because I have a caffeine thing. It's I haven't 
had an Easter Sunday like that, but I'm really looking forward to just drinking in next Sunday. And I hope you will too, but I'll be back, Lord willing, a few weeks after that, and we'll talk about the strategy, not the source, not the steps, but the strategy to overcome temptation. Father, thank you for the time that we've shared today. This is a technical section. It's designed to help us see, almost look like looking at game film, trying to understand how our opponent functions to the end that we can make choices to interrupt or to take action that will prevent loss and death. Lord, I pray that as we prepare this Easter week, this Passion Week, that we'll think about the good God who spent at great price, Lord, a provision for our salvation. And that, Lord, we'll recognize there's no way that he would want to draw us out in a way that would be harmful, but has provided for our satisfaction in good and legitimate ways. And it's the enemy and it's our desire that come together in a willful union that harms us in ways that are hard to imagine. Help us to think right and help us to decide well to the end that we can enjoy the pleasure and the treasure of being a first fruit for your possession and for our blessing. That's our prayer together today. In Jesus' name, amen.